Morning, familia. That was good. Good morning, familia. Now it feels like a multi-ethnic church. Uh, for those of you that are using our booklet, the booklet that we passed out last week, you could take notes if you go to page, I believe it's page 11. Uh, and this is also an invitation for those of you that are not part of one of our live groups just yet. The way we actually become a part of a, of a live group is by first going to root it. You can see it on the other side of your booklet if you have it. This is kind of the beginning of the journey. So right um, at the end of the service, um, please go right outside to the common area, and you're going to find a table there that gives you information about Rooted. Uh, you can sign up. They will assign you to a group, and it's going to be awesome. So let me start with a question here. Um, what would it take for little people... Little people like you and me to make a difference in this world. What would it take for us as little people to be part of a movement? A movement, by definition, is a group of people working together to advance their shared beliefs in society and to want to change things. A movement, by definition, it's a group of people that cannot find contentment in simply being spectators. They must do something. In that sense, Christianity is a movement. Christianity is much more than a religion. It is much more than people gathering in a building. It is much more than nice, well-behaved People, people that smell good. That's what I can smell from here. It might be me, but smell good. Christianity is much more than a comfortable life. It is much more than the American dream. Christianity is a movement. It's a group of people that is willing to stop running from anything that feels uncomfortable and feels risky. Christianity is about a group of people that have been transformed by the love of God in such a way that are willing to be different and live different. And that's why we call this series the Upside Down Kingdom, or Upside Down Kingdom, which is based on the sermon on the mount, which is Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. And, it is, and if it is Jesus' first sermon to his disciples, that should tell you something about Christianity. It should tell you something about what being a Christian means. That's part of his discipleship training. And this is the first sermon. And I find that extremely crazy. The passage which is read might be one of the most confrontational, most uncomfortable, and probably one of the most radical passages in the Bible. What is interesting, though, it is that it's also one of, those, one of the most popular passages in Christianity. Like, how many of you guys heard before the phrase, we are the salt and light of the world? Please raise your hand. 
Is there anyone here who has never heard that before? Please raise your hand so we can pray for you. <laughs> this passage is so and so popular that I feel that we have, we have lost its meaning. It became a religious passage and not a transforming passage. And this passage tells you one thing. Life is not about you. That's the whole premise of the text. Life is not about you. It tells us that Christianity is about learning how to die to ourselves for two purposes. The glory of God and the sake of others. That's Christianity 101. Christianity is about to learning how to die to yourself for the glory of God and the sake of others. In other words, this passage is a smack in the face for those of us that struggle with individualism and self-centeredness. It is smack in the face for those of us that have reduced Christianity to our personal happiness and comfort. That's why it's so confrontational. And listen, believe me, I'm not angry. You might feel that way, but I'm not. It's that I, that I feel that we have reduced Christianity to something that looks nothing like what the Bible talks about. Now hold on there for a second, because if you brought a friend today, you might be saying, what is this guy doing this, this is going south. And I would say, though, don't worry about that right now because I truly believe that it's a passage like this that makes Christianity so unique, so powerful, and so attractive. Because it describes a Christianity that no one else has. It proposes something that no one else can offer. So don't worry about that. So if you're visiting for the first time, we love you, and please come back. The passage tells us three things. It tells us what the church is, what the church does, and why it does it. What the church is, what the church does, and why we do the things we do. And when I'm using the word church, I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about people. And Jesus here, let's go with the first point, what the church is. And Jesus here starts describing Christian people, the church, as salt and light. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Notice that he doesn't say that Christians are like salt or light, like lights. It says you are. And that's significant because he's talking about our identity. This is something we are if you are a Christian. It's not just something you do. It's something you are. Wherever you go, whatever you do, that's what you are. Now, the word salt is very significant in the text 
Because in ancient times, salt had two main purposes. It was used as a preservative, and it was used as a condiment. As a preservative, when, when, when Jesus talks about the church as a preservative, he's saying that the church is kind of an antiseptic. It penetrates something in order to keep it from destruction. It's very interesting. Christianity is about penetrating society, keeping it from destruction. Therefore, Christianity as salt is the enemy of decay. And as a condiment, it tells that Christianity gives flavor. The church gives flavor. Actually, what salt does is it brings out the flavor of something that is already there. It makes good things better. Example of this is I love red meat. I love it. It's not a Hispanic thing. It's a human being thing. <laughs> I actually enjoy meat without salt. I actually enjoy raw meat. So please pray for me. But meat with salt, mm, 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 mm. it's just delicious. So if you are a vegetarian, I'm praying for you. You are keeping yourself from a blessing. I am tempted to say that you are going against the Bible. I'm not going to say it, but I'm, I'm tempted to say it. Because God told Peter, kill and eat. I'm just saying, it's there. <laughs> but if you really pay attention to this, this is a beautiful description of what the church is. It's an amazing description of what the church is. Because if we are the salt of the world as a, as a preservative, it means that everything you do at home, in your neighborhood, at work, at school, God uses to keep things from going from bad to worse. As long as you're there, as long as you do what you do and you are who you are, God uses you to keep things from going from bad to worse. Every act of kindness, every act of service, Every time you do something for someone, God uses that as a preservative. That's why Christians should be in every segment of society. That's why we should want our kids to be more than pastors and more than missionaries. That's why we want our kids to be in every segment of society. And if the church is salt, everything we do at home, in our neighborhood, at work, at school, is supposed to give flavor to society. If there's a group of people that should be known for joy, it should be Christians. There are people that sometimes seem like if they were baptized with lemon juice, But gospel people are people that give 
flavor to society. See, one of the most dangerous things that I, that I find in, in Christianity and in the church in general is that we have created what I call this spiritual dualism, right? What that means is that we have this tendency, which is unbiblical, to say that some things are sacred and religious and some things are not sacred, therefore not religious. And that's, that's a crazy problem. Because then whenever you read the Bible, whenever you come to church, whenever you, you, do, you do your devotion or whenever you give money to the church, whenever you do all that kind of stuff, you say, well, that's sacred. But then everything else you do is secondary. And what the Bible teaches, because the church is salt and light, everything we do, everything we do is religious. Everything we do is spiritual. Everything we do is sacred. Wherever you go and whatever you do. Because everything we do is an act of worship. Because everything we do is before the presence of the almighty God. James Montgomery Voice, which is a Presbyterian pastor that passed away already, he used to say this. I believe such Christians, talking about the salt-like Christians, exert an incalculable influence on society. Their mere presence reduces crime, restrains ethical corruption, promotes honesty, quickens the conscience, and elevates the general moral atmosphere. The presence of such people in the military, in business, in education, in a fraternity will amazingly elevate the level of living. And their absence will allow unbelievable depths of depravity. Believers, salty believers, are the world's preservative. So he calls the church salty Christians. We are here to change things. We are here to influence society. And one of the arguments he makes is that assaulted Christians should produce certain level of thirst and other people because that's what salt does. It makes you thirsty. Now, this is crazy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he would say, uh, which British pastor that passed away as well, he would oftentimes say that as a church, we are so desperate, so desperate to attract people that are non-Christians. And there's nothing wrong with that. But his argument is that the best uh, thing that we could do to attract non-Christians is your life. So the more and more you are like Jesus the more attractive the gospel looks. So don't put it on the church. It's you. Don't put it on the worship alone or the preaching alone. It's you. You are the most attractive thing to Christianity. Well, at least you ought to be the most attractive thing to, thing to Christianity. This is also interesting. Rob last week talked about the Beatitudes, right? Which is in, the, in our Bible is usually translated as blessed or being happy. What is interesting though is that there's a reason why this passage comes after the Beatitudes. 
Because one of the translations for the word beatitude or blessed or happiness is the word envy. Our life supposed to produce some sort of holy envy to non-believers. It should make some, it should make them a wonder. Listen, that's my story. I grew up in an evangelical home. I went to church every now and then. I did the religious things. But it was at age 21 when I started to see the testimony of the people I loved, the life of the people I loved, a life full of joy. Check this, when they didn't have anything That didn't make sense to me. How could this woman, tiny, short woman, lost everything and is happy? And that's what the Lord used to bring me to him. Because Christianity is always contagious. True Christianity is always contagious. Are you salt? Now, the second word is the word light, which is both in the Old and in the New Testament is frequently used to describe purity, truth, and divine revelation. And what I think Jesus is doing here, he is telling them that the only way someone can remain salty and not lose their saltiness in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of trials, is when you're not willing to sacrifice biblical convictions. The moment you sacrifice biblical convictions, the moment you lose your saltiness. The moment you sacrifice truth, divine revelation, The moment you lose purity and holiness, that moment you lose your saltiness. You are the salt of the the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what the church is. My second point is what the church does. And on this one, I want to see some of the implications about what it means to be salt and light here. And from the text, I'm going to give you three evidences of your faith, or three things that describe Christianity. Christianity is always public, personal, and practical. Christianity is always public, personal, and practical. Look at public here. That's all over the text. So in verse 14, it says that a light cannot be hidden, supposed to be out there. In verse 15, he says that Christians or Christianity gives light to everyone. In verse 16, it says, let your light shine before others that they may see your, see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. Christianity is supposed to be a public faith. People ought to know who you are and what you believe. So listen, there's a difference between 
a public Christian and an annoying Christian. It's two different things. I want you to hear that out because those are the, I've met so many of those annoying ones. And I'm a Christian. See, the annoying one is the one that everyone is trying to avoid. Is the one that could never have a no, normal conversation with anybody else. Is the one that could only see the brokenness in the world without seeing the beauty in this world. It is the one that could only see the sin in others but cannot see that that sinful person is still created in the image of God. Did you get that? The annoying Christian is the one that sees the sin in the, person, in, the, in, in, the, in the heart of a person, but cannot see the image of God in the same person. Verse 16, when he uses the word good, he uses a word in the Greek called kalos. That it carries this idea of attractiveness or beauty. That's what good means there. And it goes back to the concept that I just mentioned. You are supposed to be people that make the gospel look attractive and beautiful. Not annoying. Do you consider your life to be beautiful and attractive in the sight of others? Do people know what you believe? See, the way I see it, that there's only two options. You either, three options. You're either ignorant, you never heard this before, which I doubt it. Two, you're not a Christian. Or three, maybe, 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 just maybe, you're a bit of a coward. Our, our faith is public. They're supposed to see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. Our faith is also personal and practical. And this comes from the word deeds, which is a practical thing. It's acts of compassion, acts of love. And the implication there is that as Christians, we love with words and with actions. Christianity requires personal contacts. A Christian does not know how to love from the distance. For those of you that are married, would you be okay if your spouse tells you, honey, I love you, but I'm not going to do anything for you? Would you be okay with that? Would you, okay with, would you be okay with someone telling you, you have no idea how much I love you, but don't expect me to change anything for you? Would you be okay with that? You see, Christianity is not about that. If you are a Christian or becoming a Christian, you are not called to live in isolation. You have no permission to create your own little Christian society. Do you hear that? You have no permission to create your little Christian ghetto. We're supposed to go in and get dirty. We're supposed to go in and get dirty. Even if people are ungrateful, 
Even if people don't want what you have, even if people don't deserve what you have. That's why Christianity is so radical. Because it calls you to do something to the people that don't want it. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. I have a perfect illustration for this. Jeremiah chapter 29. And in this passage, in this, in this uh, chapter, you find one of those Christian verses that everyone has, uh, everyone knows. You probably have, have this in a picture frame or a coffee mug or something at home. This is what the verse says. For I know the plans that I have for you. Ever heard of that? Help me out. Please raise your hand. Declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And everyone says, that, oh my goodness, that's beautiful. Unless you understand the context of that chapter. And it's not as romantic as you think it is. Because the context of the chapter talks about the Babylonians taking the Israelites into captivity. They have executed family members. They have executed kids and, and, uh, and adults. They have taken their goods. They have taken with them everything of value, and they, left every, and they left behind everything that they did not consider to be beautiful or valuable. This is the context of the story of Daniel, for those of you that know the story. Now, this is what makes this text so crazy radical. Is that the Lord calls the Israelites to seek the peace and prosperity of that city and to pray to the Lord for it. That's the context. And that's the call. Christianity is not just about your own personal happiness. Your faith is public, personal, and practical. That's what it means to be salt and light. That's what it means to have a public faith. That's what it means to love in word and deed. You have no permission to love people in this world from away. You go in and you get dirty. Now, if you're honest, and you have to be, you would say something like this. That's crazy. Like, who can do that? Here, pick me. I'm willing to suffer for you. Pick me. No one would say that. And part of the reason why none of us would actually say that that way is because it is much easier to seek for my own happiness than the happiness of others. It is much easier for me to think about my own things, my own problems, my own family than thinking about anyone else. It is much easier to say, me, not you, instead of you, not me. 
I'm assuming that that's what the disciples are thinking. So Jesus calls them, follow me, and this is the first sermon. Can you imagine you being there and saying, man, this terrible. I was going to use another word, but I don't know how much you guys could take. This is not appealing. I didn't sign up for this. Going back to Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says that whenever you read the Sermon on the Mountain, the first feeling that you should have is that you cannot leave that out. Because it is that feeling that takes you to Jesus. Because it is acknowledging what you are, how much you lack, that takes you to Jesus. Which is my third point. The only reason... Christians are willing to do this is because they have experienced Jesus as inspiration and as transformation. They have experienced Jesus as inspiration and as transformation. Let me get this out here because I made a mistake here. I'm sorry. Jesus as an inspiration. It starts by you acknowledging that Jesus was the only person that ever lived what the text demands. Jesus was the only person that ever lived what the text requires. He was the only one that truly lived his life as salt and light. He did not run from the world. He did not love from the distance. He was not indifferent to our necessities. He penetrated our world in order to keep us from self-destruction. If you want an example of what it means to be radical, you have to look at Jesus, the one that was willing to get his hands dirty for the sake of others, the one that was willing to love his enemies, the one that would seek for the peace and the prosperity of our soul. You want inspiration? You look at Jesus. You want a model? You look at Jesus. But if I stop there, that's just inspiration. Have you ever wondered why is it that whenever we hear the story of a hero in real life, we all get moved? We all get moved. If you don't, if you're not moved, you're dead. But that's not enough. Because two minutes later, that feeling goes away. And the pressure of your heart is much stronger than the desire you had before. Therefore, inspiration is not enough. We need transformation. We need to be transformed from the inside out. In order for us to learn how to love others in this world, more than when we love ourselves, we need to be transformed. We need to experience transformation. And I find it extremely interesting that Jesus here uses the phrase good deeds in verse 16. Because it's the same phrase that later on Paul would use in Titus chapter 2 to describe the, the life of a Christian in the context of redemption. So this is what Paul says in Titus. That the only reason or the only way by which we become people 
eager to do good deeds is because we have been redeemed in Jesus Christ, meaning purchased by Jesus Christ, set free by Jesus Christ. He redeemed us from all wickedness to purify for himself a people of his very own, eager to do what is good. If you want freedom to be able to live this out, you must believe that Jesus Christ redeemed you. You must believe that Jesus Christ purchased you. You must believe that Jesus Christ sets you free. You must believe that Jesus purifies you. You must believe that Jesus makes you his own. You know what that means? And we sang this, that God puts you here, never lets you go. That's what Jesus guarantees. And it's out of that context that we become people eager to do good works. Listen, we, we, we don't need to be afraid of getting dirty. You are secure in Jesus Christ. We are not driven by despair. We are secure in Jesus Christ. You have nothing to earn. You have it all in Jesus Christ. It is out of that that we become people of word and deed. It is out of that that we love others in word and deed. I know that sometimes this call is really hard and really complicated. Because I know that sometimes you feel that what you do is never enough. So I would like to leave you with a little poem that has been so helpful for me in everything that I try to do. I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. If you are the church, that's what you are. If you are the church, that's what you do. Let us pray. Lord, as we mentioned before, there is nothing, nothing more beautiful, nothing more attractive, nothing more inviting to people who doesn't have, who don't have a relationship with you than the life of a Christian, than the desires of a Christian, than the passions of a Christian, than the convictions of a Christian. Lord, in this new season of WBC and IDP and Tri-Village, my prayer is that you make of us more and more people of salt and people of light. Salty people. Until others are thirsty for what we have. In the name of Jesus, we pray.
And we all say,